Hi, everyone. This is Drew Perot here, executive producer of the Broken Brain docuseries and host of this podcast, The Broken Brain Podcast. The goal of the Broken Brain Podcast is to continue the conversations that Dr. Hyman started during the series and invite guests that we highly respect to help us dive deeper into the topics of brain health, food is medicine, longevity, and living our best life. I'm excited to have you back for a new episode with one of the stars from the docuseries, Dr. Rupi Ojala. Dr. Rupi is an NHS physician based in the UK who started the brand The Doctor's Kitchen, a multi-platform resource to inspire patients about the beauty of food and the medicinal effects of eating well. He creates delicious recipes and talks about the amazing clinical research behind all the fantastic ingredients that he uses on his YouTube channel, his Instagram, and also his podcast, which is doing really well, and his blog too. In his role as a clinical advisor to the Royal College of GPs, he's committed to bringing the concept of culinary medicine to professionals globally. And recently, he published with HarperCollins a book called The Doctor's Kitchen, available both in America and the UK and worldwide. You can find it on Amazon. Just type in Doctor's Kitchen. And might I say, it's a beautiful book. Dr. Rupi, thank you for joining the Broken Brain Podcast and being part of the series. Of course, buddy. I'm very happy to be here, mate. I love your work, and I just see, you know, I recently was in London, and we got the chance to spend time together. You introduced me to a lot of the uh, community out there of physicians that uh, I was surprised to see how young this motivated group of physicians is that are all trying to really create a shift in medicine and teach people that food is medicine. Uh, and recently, actually, there was an article that came out on the BBC just a few weeks ago that was titled, Doctors Learn Nothing About Nutrition. <laughs> yeah. And you were mentioning the piece and your podcast got a really nice plug. It feels like to me on looking on the outside that groundswell is building up. Does it yes. feel like that to you? I would definitely say so. And it's quite interesting you picked up on the fact that our grassroots movement is very young in the UK. We have people like uh, Rungan, um, uh, myself, Hazel, there's Dr. Zoe, who you, you met at the dinner that we, we hosted uh, a couple of weeks back. And, you know, there's just this huge interest because a lot of people are recognizing when you use solely a pharmaceutical approach to chronic lifestyle related disease in particular, you, you can't actually confer benefits that are long term, you can't actually reverse medical problems. It has to be a combined approach. And food is a very important part of that puzzle, but also exercise and the other lifestyle factors too. Um, and I think it's a young movement because this is being driven by social media. A lot of those people that we had uh, dinner with, you know, I met them via social media and the people using social media are obviously going to be of a younger generation, a much more vibrant and vocal generation as well. So take me to the beginning. You know, you have a book now, you have this podcast that's doing really well as one of the top podcasts in the UK. Um, you've built this incredible movement on social media, on YouTube. Where did it start from you? Did you one day just wake up and say, I'm going to start making recipes and film it? <laughs> you know, to, to give me a little bit of your origin story of how a physician actually decided to teach people that one of the most important things is to teach them how to cook and make healthy recipes. Yeah, sure. So I, uh, I think it all started before medical school. And my mum got ill when I was a, a young boy. I think I was about 12 at the time. And she started suffering from anaphylaxis episodes. And she went through a whole series of different medical tests. She met some of the best immunologists in the country, met multiple doctors. And she was essentially 
confined to uh, medication lifelong and the constant fear of an anaphylaxis attack, which for your listeners is the most severe form of allergy where you, ne- you need to take adrenaline in shots and you always have to have an adrenaline shot with you. And I watched her overhaul her lifestyle, her food, her mindset and actually come off medication. So I, I kind of was given this um, uh, experience of how important food and lifestyle is before I even went to medical school. And also with my Asian background, as you probably know, you know, we always have this sort of food and medicine uh, um, backdrop to, to everything. It's very much inbred into our culture. But then I went to medical school, was conventional medical trained. You know, I kind of forgot what actually led me to medicine in the first place. And I, I remembered why I went to medical school in the first place when I got ill myself. So I started suffering as a junior doctor um, from something called atrial fibrillation, which is a cardiac condition when your heart beats very fast. And in my case, irregularly as well. Um, I went through a similar path to my mum, actually. I went from physician to physician, multiple investigations. No cause was found, no trigger to these episodes. And they were plaguing me, you know, two to three times a week sometimes, lasting anywhere between 12 and 36 hours. And it was a very uncomfortable situation when your heart's just racing. And I was going to have an intervention called an ablation, which is where you pass a wire through the major vessel into the heart and it essentially burns an area where all these cells are being excitable and causing the symptom of atrial fibrillation. And as a hardline medic at that time, you know, everyone was saying the same thing, definitely have the ablation, it's 100%, you know, in some cases very, very curative. And it was being sold to me as a curative intervention. So I was definitely going to go for it. My mum was the one person that said, you need to look at your lifestyle. You need to just try and figure out. <laughs> mom knows best. Exactly, yeah. And Indian moms knows even better. You know? <laughs> um, so she was like, you know, you need to just look at your lifestyle. So with the blessing of my cardiologists, I was allowed to stay on the medication regime that I was on and experiment with different lifestyle measures as I awaited to have an ablation. So if I'm being honest, it was really to appease my mum that I actually chose to investigate and do a bit of research into lifestyle. So I started with food and stress reduction. I mean, I was working as a junior doctor, busy lifestyle, night shifts, lots of stress. Um, So I tried to attenuate all these different lifestyle factors. And to my surprise and to the astonishment of a lot of my medical colleagues i was able to reverse my condition um and it's quite retrospectively hard to dissect exactly why this was was it my food was it my microbiome was it the stress was it my mindset was it lack of sleep you know all these different things but it really affirmed for me the amazing ability of the body to look after itself if you put it in the optimum environment or the best environment you can and that really led to me, you know, having more honest conversations with my patients and experimenting with recipes for them and trying to give them advice and motivation and get them excited about the subject of lifestyle medicine. And that's when the doctor's kitchen sort of popped into my head about uh, a resource where people could go and learn about how they can eat their way to health. Um, and, and that was really the start of something that I, I was only just trying to influence my local patient population. It really wasn't something that I thought was going to turn into a book or anything grander than that. Uh, and it's it's been quite a journey so far, but I'm enjoying it. Yeah. And, you know, just hearing that story from from you, you know, uh, 
they say that you know the, the best doctors are the ones who have had to put themselves in the patient's position. And I hear this story of you being on the other side and trying to figure things out and looking for other answers that triggered this curiosity. You know, we talked about how young the movement is. And even here in America, we see a lot of younger doctors getting into it. I think part of it is it's being driven by social media. But I think another part of it, too, is that many people are getting sicker earlier. So these young doctors, just like other young people who aren't physicians or in the health world, they're getting sicker and they're having to, to deal with it where a lot of our contemporaries here, you know, at the annual functional medicine conference, many of them went through that moment, but like, you know, in their early 40s or their mid 40s. So it's interesting to see how as the population is getting sicker earlier, it's driving this push where we're waking up, especially the doctors that are in your position are saying, we need to do something about this. Yeah, it's really telling you say that because it was only a few weeks ago, one of my really close friends from medical school has just been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Now, he is, yes, overweight, but he's only 35. That's only three years above me. And that really paints the the picture that you're painting right now. Like we are getting sicker earlier. And when you're in that patient position and you experience that vulnerability that I did as well, you don't want to be confined to medication for the rest of your life. You know what happens after that. You're on the next medication and then the next medication and you experience the side effects over decades. So people are trying to investigate different ways of looking after themselves. And when they experience how difficult that is, but and then they come across lifestyle medicine, you can't help but tell more people about it and your patients. And when you're in a position of influence as a doctor, you you have a lot more um, uh, say in this and you, you're a lot more influential because you come with that medical background as well. So it's, yeah, it's, it's an interesting situation that we're finding ourselves in. You know, so much of your work in lifestyle medicine, functional medicine is really just starting at the plate and food and what yeah. we eat and reinvigorating us. And, you know, you're facing this massive challenge. You know, last year, uh, two years ago was the first year that at least in the United States, the amount of money spent eating out per capita as a whole in the United States surpassed the amount of money spent on grocery stores. And then uh, I think uh, Michael Pollan a few years ago released a stat that said we spend, again, North America, but I'm sure England's not that far behind. uh, We spend more time, we spend 28 minutes on average as a society watching reality TV shows about cooking. (laughs) And, and we spend more time watching TV about cooking than actually cooking as a society. <laughs> right. So, you know, these are these growing trends. How, you know, it seems like it's such a monumental task yeah, and yet yeah. you're doing it. Yeah, yeah. I think you've got to start somewhere. And I like to start from a solutions focused viewpoint as well. There are tons of stats out there that paint a very bleak picture of our current scenario and where we're heading as well. And I see really this is an opportunity to actually engage with the public better, to figure out what kind of platforms people are using and what kind of people uh, people are being tr- uh, trusting of as well. And, you know, that's where the intersection, if you think of a Venn diagram, is social media and those with the medical knowledge, incredible medical knowledge as well. And that's why it's almost as if you can't not do this. You can't not try. You can't not try and, and, and engage and motivate the patient population to eat their way to health. And it's a very simple concept for people to grasp as, uh, as, as people are. You know, the concept of food as medicine isn't lost on people. They kind of get it. But the extent to how much they get it is, is where there is a, a gray line. So, you know, when I talk about how uh, broccoli and different sorts of dark green leafy vegetables can impact your microbiome, as well as 
the different sorts of chemicals that are circulating around your body, the effect on inflammation, you know, it, it contextualizes food. It gives people something more to aspire to as well. And, and it's being received very well because there's a lot of evidence base behind it. Prior to that, it was kind of, you know, a bit murky and a bit uh, unqualified. <laughs> yeah, the research is catching up to show what your mom, my mom, exactly. many of the moms yeah. listening here have known for such a long time. And we can actually support all these things that we're talking about. Because it seems that I'm sure you have many patients that come in and see you and they think that they're eating a healthy diet. And they just don't know the extent of how healing these foods are. And they don't understand truly how food can be medicine in their daily life. Um, talk to me a little bit about, you know, you mentioned a little bit about broccoli and the microbiome and other aspects. What are some other common things that people just do not understand the extent and the role that food plays on our body on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of people, like you said, assume that they have a normal diet and it's not really impacting or driving any of the conditions that are pushing them over the edge into chronic lifestyle-related disease. Um, and they don't understand the intersection between nutrition and lots of other medical issues, lots of other medical specialties, whether we're talking about endocrinology, psychiatry, um, uh, immunology even as well. A common example is um, breakfast. And this is my favorite question to ask. What do, what do you eat for breakfast? Because that gives me in 10 seconds, and in the context of the NHS, we only have eight to nine minutes per patient. So it's very, very confined. We've got to find hacks. That gives me a little snapshot into what they're probably eating over a 24-hour period. And if it's cereals or you know, uh, semi-skin milk or juice or you know something else sweet, and that's and that's what they tend to eat over seven days as well. They don't really stray away from that. That's given me an idea that they're probably having a lot of refined carbohydrates throughout the whole 24 hours. And they don't realize just how much sugar in particular is in that meal. I like to inspire people, rather than scare people about it, I like to inspire people about how mealtime is an opportunity to truly nourish your body. So getting different colors in at every mealtime. You know, we have this five-a-day uh, um, sort of... Uh, Campaign. Campaign, yes, exactly. And no one's even hitting that, nowhere near. But the opportunity to hit that is because, you know, if you introduce these different colors at different mealtimes. So that's where I try to start. And, and I see a lot of people falling down at breakfast. And when you fall down at breakfast, you know, high sugar, you're on a roller coaster for sugar the rest of the day. You're going to be catching up. You're going to be snacking. You're going to be eating throughout like a longer period than 12, 14 hours. That's going to have a, an imbalance on your uh, cortisol levels, your sugar levels, your sleep, your uh, concentration. And when you explain like that, then people get it. They kind of have a light bulb moment. And that's uh, a standard thing, like a little um, uh, conversation I have with people uh, whenever they come in and ask me about diet. Because every patient knows they don't feel good. But the challenge is they don't always know the connection. So you're connecting the dots for them. And even more importantly, you're also teaching them how to actually cook. What are the barriers? You know, you have these seven to eight minutes, 10 minutes with the patient um, which I, I hear that often you run late because you spend so much time talking <laughs> yeah, to your patients, yeah. which is a beautiful thing. <laughs> you have this very short amount of period of time and, and you tell them about the importance of starting off the day right with maybe a green smoothie or some more nutritious fat or protein in the morning. And I'm sure one of the common things that you get back from patients is 
but doc, I don't have time or yeah. I don't know how. Yeah. And then what do you share with them? Yeah. So I, I share with them little uh, breakfast hacks. I teach them about the concept of prepping meals. I uh, The other thing I get asked a lot about is cost as well. So a lot of people believe that um, healthy eating is too costly or it's out of their reach uh, because it's kind of got this... Um, aspirational sort of uh elitist it's el- gonna be elitist it's a, exactly yeah it's a it's a little bit out of people's grasp um and, and that's why i do a lot of work with a community kitchen called made in hackney and we literally teach people how to source and how to cook food from scratch and we teach them where where to get it where it's cheaper as well and how to actually incorporate these concepts of eating the different colors and eating more plant focused so you know these are the challenges that i i kind of come across and i've found different ways of teaching people how they can elevate their nutrition without you know uh, while smashing all these sort of preconceptions about healthy eating so let's run through some of those myths that are there because i mean i'm sure many listeners here also run up against these so let's talk about the, the, the time component, which is very real for people. Where do you, how do you meet your patients where they are and address the component of, I don't have enough time to, to cook? Yeah, so um, meal prepping, I think, is probably one of the best things. Um, so if you make like a big batch of brown rice on a Sunday or uh, lentils or you pre-roast butternut squash or sweet potatoes or different tubers, then that means you've got like a rich carbohydrate that you can quickly knock up different nutritious vegetables alongside. And then you've got like a quick nutrition meal in the morning. So something that I do is have sweet potatoes ready in the fridge. And then I'll just add some chopped spinach to that and maybe uh, quickly um, poach an egg. And that way I've got like all the different colors. I've got lots of different proteins and fats and I've made it in less than like six, seven minutes as well. And I've stayed with you and you're a busy guy. You have a lot on your plate. (laughs) You speak at a lot of events and I was recently staying with you in London and you make a meal quick. Yeah. (laughs) It's almost like it's quicker for you to make meal at home than it is to go out, pick something up and come back. Yes. Yeah. And that's something that I try and teach patients. And, you know, there can be little hacks like sprinkling nuts and seeds, for example, great source of different fatty acids, really good fiber content, very easy to add to your meal, right? Even if I'm trying to stepwise, you know, not a lot of people are just going to go straight for greens and roast sweet potato. People need to be nudged very gently. So if they've got uh, cereal in the morning, I might transfer them to oats. Oats are very quick to make, you know, put them on the stove, uh, use whole grain oats as much as possible, not the sweetened ones, and then adding, you know, some flax into that, or maybe even some crushed pistachios. That adds the nutritional value of your meal in the morning. So that might be a nice way to step people up towards a meal that's a lot more nutritious than that because they need achievable goals. So it's kind of like work in progress and it really depends on the patient that's in front of me too. You know, we have, uh, Dr. Hyman says it best. He says, you know, we have an entire generation of kids that are being raised by and don't know how to cook, Mm. but also a lot of their parents didn't necessarily know how to cook, you know? And so they just were never taught, you know, growing up, I'm sure, you know, our parents both being from uh, Indian descent, South Asian, I, my parents would never make a meal for one meal Mm. whenever they would cook because there was such precious time, them both working and being busy, my dad running a hospital, my mom being a teacher, when they would cook, they would cook for multiple meals, usually two 
at a time. Yeah. But nowadays you see people feeling like, oh, I just not interested in cooking because they haven't embraced the meal prep component, whether it's making on Sunday, that alone can significantly change how much time is used towards cooking. Absolutely. And even to today, like when I go home and I spend time with my family, you know, my mum will make a massive meal and we won't eat it all, but my dad will have that for lunch the next day. I'll have it for breakfast the next morning. You know, Tupperware is our favorite gadget in our in our household, you know, uh, because we've embraced that that concept of meal prepping and making big batches of food so you don't have to constantly be in the kitchen. And that's something that I think a lot of people don't recognize. And when you embrace that, it's, uh, it's very powerful, actually. And that's how you can avoid the cost as well of trying to eat healthy all the time. Yeah, let's talk about the cost component. You hinted at it a little earlier. It's a very real thing. And, um, you know, Dr. Hyman has put this really incredible uh, uh, guide called How to Eat Healthy on a Tight Budget mm. with EWG. And I know you recently have done some social media work. You did a, a challenge with a, a group in England who yeah. challenged you for, um, what was it, 10 bucks? It 10 bu- yeah. For 10 yeah, bucks, can yeah. you feed, a, can feed, you feed four, four people? Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I know, so you're very focused on that. Obviously, you have to be. You're dealing with population mm. of, of not always affluent people, people yes. who are on a tight budget. So let's talk about the cost component. What are other ways, uh, besides obviously making meals in batches, how do you keep the cost down for eating healthy? Yeah. So that was a really interesting challenge that I did. It was uh, with a, a couple of guys called Mob Kitchen and they focus really on student meals. So they wanted me to come in and like, you know, not only bring in the cost component, but actually bring the health component as well. So you know, we literally went to a local supermarket. We got parsley, we got bolotti beans, we got like different sorts of uh, whole grains. I made um, these uh, uh, corn tacos and I, like, it fed like five, six people and it came up to like £9.80, which is probably about 14 bucks, I think, something like that. Um, and another challenge I was given by my own consultant in uh, accident emergency. Um, he was like, you know, everyone at 11 p.m. just goes home. They go by the takeout, they get some fried chicken and they eat it and they go to work the next day. So our own NHS staff are uh, having their health um, deteriorate because of our working shifts and the inability to look and see where the healthy food is. So I went across the road to, again, another mini supermarket right opposite my A&E department where I work. And I grabbed a few ingredients. It was like sugar snap peas and some beans, some tomatoes, a few other healthy um, sort of spices. And I made like a, a smoky paella um, that they can make in less than 10 minutes. And so it, it's kind of like by showing people how to do it, you actually motivate them to want to do it. Mm. Um, and when people can actually see, and that's why I started with YouTube, when people can actually see you make the food and you talk about the food in a way that's actually understandable, and enjoyable then people are more likely to like oh when next time i go to the supermarket i'm going to try that and once you master these recipes you will start experimenting and naturally get better and more proficient in the kitchen it's like they see you making food and they're like okay this is doable yeah this is doable (laughs) and a lot of your recipe videos are in real time it'll follow you in real time and so you see it's like a maybe a eight minute video of you actually making in real time this recipe. Yeah, like there's, uh, so I do Facebook Lives in the morning before I go to clinic and it'll be at seven in the morning and I'll be showing people what I'm having for breakfast and I won't, it won't be edited, it will literally just me on my phone, about 15 minutes, but the actual recipe takes less than 10 and I'll be answering questions during that time. And I've had so many people after watching that and be like, I've made that for breakfast now. And I can totally see why it's so easy to do. You just need to have the ingredients there and just 
put a little bit more time into prepping, making sure you got those things from the supermarket and you can make healthy, delicious meals in less than 10 minutes. I think another component of the cost is also if you go to the supermarket and buy ready to make meals or you're buying these expensive, if you're going to go buy gluten-free Oreos, which are still <laughs> sugary and not a health food yeah. and that sort of thing, um, those things add up. But in general, you know, like the CEO of Whole Foods, and of course they recently sold Amazon, people would always make fun of Whole Foods and they say, oh, it's a whole paycheck because you spent all your paycheck there. But he's like, listen, I just want to be super real. Jeff, uh, uh, John Mackey, if you buy fruits and vegetables, organic fruits and vegetables are just slightly more expensive. It's when you go and your diet is made of packaged foods, yeah. you know, these organic fancy cereals or this or that, that all adds up, but fruits and vegetables are accessible and pretty cheap. Absolutely, yeah. And that's one of the things that we teach at this community kitchen. Uh, we literally show them the whole fruits and vegetables, we show them the price of them, and we show them how to cook. And when you just cook from the grocery aisle, i.e. no packages, no labels, nothing like that, your bill is really, really cheap. And when you start prepping things like lentils, beans, and legumes from scratch as well, and soaking them properly and cooking them properly, that's it's even cheaper, you know. So this isn't, it's, I don't think it's the cost. I think it's lack of education and lack of perceived time as well. But when you add the health element, when you actually explain why this is actually going to lead them to healthier, happier lives, then they're more invested in it and they're more likely to put the effort into. It's like recognizing also the cost of not eating a healthy diet. You know, in, uh, in, in England, you guys uh, have um, a universal health care for everybody. And in America, you know, we don't have that. One of the number one, uh, the number one reason for going bankrupt in America are medical bills. Um, fortunately, in the UK, you guys don't have to deal with that. But your health system and our health systems are going through the same thing, which is this cost are skyrocketing and physicians like yourself just cannot keep up with the total load of chronic disease that's that's there so it's you know it's it's actually now it's so crucial to every aspect of our life it, you know the military can't hire because people are too fat and overweight right i just heard this report on npr crazy, yeah. that the navy is having the navy in the united states is having challenges recruiting people because uh most of the candidates just do not pass the health assessment. Um, our food system is is going through so many challenges and we're polluting our environment. Our hospital system's back up. Food is really the crucial point of everything that we're dealing with now in society, Absolutely. separate from our individual health. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that's why another reason why it's never been so important to have a conversation about the root cause of what is driving people coming through the door. And my work as an emergency physician, as well as a GP, I'm constantly on the front line. So I see it day in, day out. I see why people are being sick. And it's it always comes down to the food and our lifestyle. And when we address that and when we actually promote that as a, uh, a vector for, for trying to rid ourselves of this problem, our burden on the healthcare systems, both UK and the US, then we can actually uh, have real change. Um, and I think, yeah, that's why I've never been so more passionate about teaching people how to cook because it literally is the answer in so many ways. Let's talk about some of the education with uh, doctors and getting physicians and other people that are in the health space trained in this. So, you know, we referenced that article in the BBC that physicians often get very little training in nutrition. Mm. Same thing in the UK, same thing in the US. So you're in the process of creating a culinary medicine course 
with the Royal College of General Practice in the UK. Tell us a little bit about that and how do you solve this big problem yeah. of bringing this education of culinary medicine to physicians? Yeah, so I think it's becoming a lot more common knowledge amongst the general population that we get less than 10 hours of nutrition in the context of our five or six year medical degree, which is shockingly low. Um, but a lot of people didn't realize that. And unfortunately, from the time I graduated to now, it's still the same situation. It's trying to be rectified, but I understand that, you know, these top-down approaches can be quite uh, arduous and they, they cannot be very effective. So me and a few other people, we got together um, and we're starting this grassroots approach where we're starting culinary medicine, which is where we teach doctors and medical students the foundations of nutrition and how to cook as well in a culinary school. And this concept isn't actually fringe. It's been around for a number of years, actually starting in the US. It started in uh, Tulane Medical School. And I think um, uh, there's a doctor called Dr. Lapuma who uh, wrote a whole bunch of papers on this about 10 years ago. So um, I reached out to Tulane and I said, look, we need to have this culinary course in the UK. License it to me and I'm going to get it accredited with the Royal College of GPs and then we're going to start this thing in the UK. And uh, I don't know how, but uh, after I like pitched it to the RCGP, they were like completely on board and they accredited it. And we've just been working with Westminster Kingsway, which is one of the best culinary schools in Europe. Um, you know, Gordon Ramsay gets some of his chefs, uh, chefs from there and Jason Atherton and Jamie Oliver's done stuff there too. Um, and we're just putting the dots together because when you start that relationship between doctors and uh, chefs, that's actually when you get people to think about it as well. I was like, oh, yes, food is medicine. So a doctor talking to a chef and actually having a relationship, you know, is is very, very natural. This shouldn't be something out of the ordinary. Um, so yeah, so we've started a few modules. Our first one was uh, early this year in 2018. Uh, we took 15 medical, uh, sorry, uh, doctors through the training and we basically introduced them to clinical cases, um, uh, the commercial kitchen environment and took them through different modules into why food can be medicinal and with an evidence-based approach as well. So anytime you do something big like that and you're shifting things up and you're changing the paradigm, there's mm -hmm. always backlash. Right. <laughs> what kind of resistance have you seen and who is it coming from and putting this together? Are people embracing this or are some people not on board? Yeah, that's a it's a really interesting point. And I think because I'm taking a real evidence based approach, I'm involving or trying to involve as many nutrition colleges as possible. I've got a lead dietitian um, that is a, a medical school in the UK. You know, everything is by the board. It's by the book, right? It's just an innovative way of trying to elevate clinicians' knowledge about nutrition. The analogy I like to use is like, let's say you need to learn anatomy. Now, you can either learn anatomy by reading Gray's Anatomy from a book and trying to memorize all the different parts of the shoulder and the brain and all the different nerves, or you can also do that, learn it from the book, but you also get experience looking at cadavers. So the prosections, you know, you do the detections using a, a body. Um, culinary medicine is essentially that. You learn nutrition from the book, you have an online module, but then you actually go into the kitchen and you learn how you use different spices, how you improve texture and flavor, why you're using different greens and how to preserve the nutritional content. So it elevates that conversation that you're, you're able to have with your patient in a clinical scenario, whether it be in a GP surgery or in a hospital environment. You know, that's, that's how I see culinary medicine as an innovative way of teaching and education. And I'm 
really grateful to say that a lot of the response has been positive and that's why you saw that BBC article and there's some prominent chefs in the UK that are getting involved and in, in supporting us. I think there's also, uh, first of all, congratulations. I think that's an amazing <laughs> feat and we need you know more examples that are out there because when one person does it in one place, um, it inspires another location to go and create it. Uh, you know, there's the work that Dr. Hyman is doing with the Cleveland Clinic and yeah. really uh, establishing with this grant that he received in 2014 a model that other hospital systems can use and model off of. And I, uh, I, I hope and I actually feel that your course is going to do the same thing, that Absolutely. people will look to it and want to create it in their area, too. Is part of the work also, too, I mean, we still, you know, we get a lot of emails and tweets and other things from the Broken Brain docuseries, which you were in, that when we talk about food and how important food is to our health and how it can impact our brain health, uh, sometimes uh, people go to their doctor and they talk about these things and there's still a little bit of like, what you eat has nothing to do with your cancer or what you eat has nothing to do with this. So mm. it's part of the work that you're also doing that really showing the research that's been around for a long period of time that just physicians have may never been aware of. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it's quite shocking, actually, when you look at the research and you realize that we've been sitting on this for about 30 years and we've recognized that, you know, something like the Mediterranean diet has been as effective, if not more than some of the medical interventions, pharmaceutical interventions that we've been promoting. Um, you know, we had this tool in our toolbox and we haven't been using it. And it does kind of break my heart when I hear patients say that exact thing. They ask their physician and they say that it doesn't have any you know, effect on cancer or brain health or mood or anything like that. Whereas I think it's just people are just lacking the knowledge and lacking the research or the um, awareness of the research. So part of the, the goal of culinary medicine is not only to equip doctors, but also show other doctors that, you know what, there is another way. And we're not being out there. We're not being radical. We're being very, very by the book and very evidence-based. And it's about welcoming more people into this uh, way of thinking too. You know, what I love uh, uh, about your book is that, first of all, it looks beautiful. Oh, it is. But, but you made all the recipes inside of there. Yeah, right? yeah. You made all the recipes inside of there. And I appreciate your variety of recipes because I think also, you know, just as processed food, there's a lot of challenges with processed food and not making food and eating out all the time. There's a trend that happens that when people start eating healthier, they, um, and go on sometimes very restrictive diets, sometimes mm -hmm. for health purposes, mm -hmm. sometimes for fads and mm -hmm. other reasons, they can stick to only a group of foods and they forget about this variety. Yeah. But we evolved with this variety. We evolved with these colors. And I see so much of the recipes that you make is about variety. Yeah. What are your tips? And when you think about making your own when you are making food for yourself and planning your week, um, how do you get all that variety in? Is it conscious effort? Do you write down your meals in advance? Like, yeah, ah, put us in your brain. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people ask me that actually because they're like, you know, your your recipes are just so innovative and out there. Like, where do you get your inspiration from? And I think I'm I'm very lucky to live and work in a city that has so much cultural diversity. And we also have an incredible food scene. Like I can go to an Argentinian restaurant one day, an Indian restaurant, Sri Lankan restaurant, a Peruvian restaurant. You know, there's so much inspiration around me that I just look at recipes. I'm like, huh, I'm going to try and use that or I'm going to try and source that ingredient or, you know, I haven't used Chipotle in this way. Um, and that just kind of just gets me excited. And there's no better 
way of de-stressing for me than getting into my kitchen, looking through my spice rack and trying to figure out how I make a recipe. Um, I, I give people a few tips um, to try and go to uh, grocery markets rather than the supermarkets. When you go to a market, you're most likely going to get local produce that's going to be local to your country and it's going to be in season as well. So that's going to naturally push you into more variety if you're just eating mostly seasonal foods because you're not going to be able to get the same berries in summer than you know the ones in winter. It's always going to change, it's constantly evolve. The other thing is having a really good spice box. Like get used to using different spices, get experimental. I have about 20 plus in my kitchen. People get so more. intimidated with spices. They do. And yet they're so easy to use. Exactly, so you yeah. You literally just take it and throw it on. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And you know what? I find uh, a good tactic is to get people to try a vegetable that they always like. So let's say tender stem broccoli or asparagus or you know something like that. You just put it in a little bit of uh, olive oil, cook it at low temperature, and try different spices on it try Sri Lankan spice try a Mexican spice try a Spanish spice you know different sort of uh, Cajun or something like that just experiment that way just use the same vegetable and see how that spice changes the complete uh, perception of flavor just from those spices and that way you get more comfortable about using that spice in different uh, contexts different foods different ingredients and that kind of stuff um and the other thing is i have very good staples in my cupboard so nut butters uh tinned um uh, beans because i need to cook very rapidly at some point so you need to have that healthy convenience food in your pantry because it's really really important but you want to try and stick to fresh vegetables where possible you know you mentioned something in the beginning part of that last answer which is said you know when you come home from seeing patients in the hospital there's nothing that's more de-stressing than making food. And I think that you have a lot of people, I'm sure many of your own colleagues, who the last thing they want to do when they leave is cook. <laughs> yeah. Because cooking feels so cumbersome for them. Mm. But you've stepped in the kitchen and you've kind of gotten in that zone. It's almost like people who feel like, I'm tired, I don't have the energy to exercise. And you're like, I'm tired, exercise actually will give me energy. <laughs> right? It's like making that flip. Yeah. And I know, you know, I work on the computer like so much of my day and in meetings and other stuff. When I get in the kitchen, I love experimenting and exploring and I get to use my, it's almost like I'm painting in a way. Yeah, it's yeah. so de-stressing. So what, what um, anything you want to say about that? Yeah, yeah. No, I think that um, for a lot of people it is cumbersome and unfortunately they don't have the same excitement. And, you know, uh, in certain cases, it's, uh, uh, it's my job to... Teach them how it doesn't need to be cumbersome and you don't actually have to put much effort. They've so made you, it a bigger deal in their head than it needs to exactly, be. Exactly, yeah. So it can be like, you know, um, what's the the most cumbersome thing about cooking? Is it the cleaning? Is it uh, the waste? Is it, you know, the chopping the, or the mise en place or, you know, um, burning things? And there's a few hacks that I like to teach people out. First thing is mise en place. So everything in its place. You chop all your different ingredients and have them on your board ready to use before you even start thinking about turning your hob on. The second thing is cleaning up as you go along. If you clean up as you go along, you're not going to be left with this big like pile of dishes at the end because when you just finish your meal the last thing you want to think about is having to drag yourself to the kitchen and clean down yeah and the other thing is just keeping everything at a low heat because as soon as you start you know trying to do a gordon ramsay and um, frying and flipping things at the same time you know everything's going to get burnt so just go really low and slow that's probably the easiest thing and when you start employing some of these principles and going simple then it becomes an easier task 
I love it. Um, you saw the Broken Brain docuseries, and of course you were part of it. And so much of people are trying to figure out the therapeutic effects of, of food and, and how to support <clears throat> our brain health, mm. how to support our energy levels. You know, you talked about breakfast and how you start the day. What are some nutritional tips um, and some things that you do in your own life uh, that help you in these different categories where you want to boost your health? Let's start off with like brain health, simple yeah. things that you can recommend that people can do to yeah. improve their brain health with food. I mean, I try and uh, keep refined sugars to an ultimate low. And I think that's probably one of the, the biggest um, issues that we have going forward um, with Alzheimer's. You know, people are coining it type 3 diabetes. You know, there's a clear sugar inflammatory element. And we know that excess refined sugars and refined carbohydrates are driving these conditions. So trying to look at different elements of your 24-hour diet or your, your seven-day diet, where you're actually having too much of this, where you're great where you're actually getting these sweets in i know for me it's usually in the emergency department when i'm like hungry or stressed and i you know i'm just reaching for something and then some lovely patient or one of the nurses has brought in some cupcakes and that kind of stuff so you know you want to try and figure out where you're getting those things the the best tip i have is to start your day well and that can be with a, a nutrient dense sort of different colored vegetables but also fiber and protein fiber and protein are lacking in most people's breakfast because we usually depend on cereals or weetabix or whatever so you want to try and get colors in there you want to try and get fiber in there uh, you know eggs uh, different sorts of nuts and seeds almonds asparagus all these different things are great and they're going to blunt uh, your sugar and they're not going to lead to these highs and lows and good quality fat those. too in the morning good quality fat with extra virgin olive oils and different nuts and seeds you know these are fantastic for us uh, and they're fantastic for brain health as in, well as in we fact know. i've seen you make breakfast and now your breakfasts are almost like they're you know so many people's breakfast they associate breakfast with sweetness yeah. sweet things sweet components and your breakfasts are very savory. Yeah, yeah. And but that's really what gives you the energy for the day. Absolutely. Sometimes I use the leftovers from my dinner the night before and I crack an egg on it. So like, you know, if I made some maybe a little bit of lentils or some green veggies, then I'll just make an egg and all of a sudden I've got breakfast. And I'm trying to coin, you know, the term broccoli for breakfast. <laughs> I like it. Hashtag? Exactly. <laughs> trying to get hashtag broccoli for breakfast. Because a lot of people don't, don't even consider the idea of broccoli for breakfast. But for me, it's very natural. Um, we need to get out the mindset of breakfast being a sweet, sweet item. The other thing is, you know, let's say I'm working late and I've eaten late as well. Um, I'm not a fan of skipping meals, but I'm certainly a fan of defining your eating periods. And what I notice from a lot of people is that we tend to eat in like a long eating window. And when I say eating window, I mean, we have our breakfast maybe at six or seven in the morning or graze throughout the whole day. And we might even snack late in the night as well. So you probably snack just before you go to bed at nine or 10 p.m. So really, you're not really giving your, your body a chance to rest. And what I like to do is not to skip meals or to reduce calories, but just to find when you're eating your meals. And when you're a bit more regimented and strict, there's a guide uh, of when you're eating, then you're actually giving your body an ability to rest outside those eating windows. And that has been shown to be very beneficial for brain health as well. And for you, what's that window look like? Uh, usually it's a 11 hour window where I'm eating and outside that will be fasting essentially so it's like you're you're just not eating all the time and that's something that i was doing quite a bit when i was working in uh, in uh, as a junior doctor and a lot of my medical colleagues will probably subscribe to the same thing actually because our shifts are so varied that we do find that we're just eating all over the place and that's something that we need to to deal with 
so yeah, so those sorts of um, eating practices, I think, are very beneficial. Quality fat, as we've already talked about. So things like extra virgin olive oil, avocado, nuts and seeds, fantastic for brain health. And also good sources of fiber as well, if you're talking about nuts and seeds. And when we look at microbiome, you know, we've been at this conference the whole week and everything just comes back to the gut. And our gut-brain axis is something that's very, very real and people need to get used to that. We look after the gut, we look after every other bodily system, particularly our brain as well. So getting sorts of different sorts of fibers, a variety of different foods as well, which nurtures that uh, that microbial population as well as removing the refined carbohydrates and and adding uh, sort of nutrient and spices turmeric basil rosemary these are not only good from an inflammation point of view they're very good from a gut health point of view too i think energy is something that a lot of people struggle with and obviously in functional medicine and lifestyle medicine it's not like you eat one diet for the brain and you yes. eat another diet for energy mm-hmm. so so many of the components that you mentioned are also really supportive for energy levels. Absolutely. Any additional things that you can think about or share if people are thinking about starting their morning, busy professionals, busy moms, um, how they can support their energy throughout the day? Yeah, I think uh, energy is one of these things that we really have to look at the root cause of, right? Because I get a lot of questions about what can I eat to improve my energy like right now? Um, and because we're, we are in a world where we demand quick fixes, uh, a lot of people uh, assume that there is a herb that I can recommend or a style of eating that's going to have dramatic effect. Whereas really, it's a combination of all those different factors. What's your sleep like? Are you using social media late? Are you using technology late? Are you stressed? Are you having excess coffee? What other things in your diet are leading you to have that dip at about 2, 3 p.m. that's leading you to have a fatigue and slump levels? You know, all these things have just as much of an impact as our food. But if we are talking about food, you know, it's going to be the anti-inflammatory foods, it's going to be the colored vegetables, it's going to be having good quality fats and limiting those sugar spikes that usually cause those tumbles in our energy at different points in the day. And I find that that strategy, combined with all the other lifestyle factors, does have significant effects on people's energy levels, but it takes time and it takes effort and it's not something that people can just do straight away either. Yeah, it's all about experimenting and seeing what's the right fit. And, you know, I always had this term of, you know, really the work is around strengthening the connection between what people eat and how they feel. Because once you know how you feel, you know the difference. I think the challenge right now today is that we don't often know what's causing us to feel. Mm. We have a sugary breakfast, uh, loads of coffee throughout the day, yeah. all these other components. And so you never really think that food has that much of an impact on your daily health. But when you start to isolate these things and improve them and minimize this and minimize that, you see that your body naturally has so much energy. Mm, yeah, Unless absolutely. if you have a, you know, uh, diagnosed with chronic fatigue or something else that's there, yeah. your body has so much natural energy. It's just, we are getting in the way yeah. of what our body does best. Exactly. A lot of people look at me and like, how do you, how do you travel so much? How do you do all these different things? How do you work? How do you, you know, keep up your appearances on social media? And I'm very honest about it. You know, there are, there are features of my lifestyle that I need to improve for sure. But my diet is generally always on point. I'm always getting those vegetables and we've eaten a whole bunch of times. You know, I'm always ordering the sides and getting all the different colors in. You know, when I'm looking after myself in that way, I have bundles of energy and my mindset is also taken care of as well. All these different things are so, so important. When you get the right combination of all these different things, that's very intuitive, like we were saying, then you're going to have so much more energy for sure. Can you slip that little tip in there, like uh, that tip for ordering at restaurants and, uh, you know, what you 
your approach is because you eat out a lot. You have yeah. to go to different conferences. What's your uh, what's your approach when you look at a menu and you're eating out? How do you get the healthiest diet for you? So I uh, subscribe to a plant-focused diet, like I think uh, Dr. Hyman and yourself do as well. Well, we're really focusing on the different colors as much as possible. So, you know, if you find that on the main course there isn't something that you really enjoy, then I go for maybe an appetizer and I just go for the sides. And I also order off the menu too. You know, we live in a society now where the chefs and the restaurants are more than happy to uh, accommodate you right so you can order things off the menu do you have any spinach do you have any mushrooms do you have some tomatoes maybe you know can you can you mix this and this that's how i like to order in restaurants i mean other times i'm gonna have a blowout and i'm gonna have like a, a lovely piece of meat or whatever like good quality steak but at the same time you do have those options and it's just about being a bit more experimental uh with the side menu <laughs> in fact we had lunch today it's your birthday happy birthday <laughs> it's funny. you uh treated us to lunch on your birthday you grabbed the bill before we could we were literally chasing after you but uh ordering which you had ordered for everybody there literally is a one dish was a plate of asparagus right that was well that was nicely cooked and yeah. another dish was a plate of mushrooms it was like you ordered basically all the sides off the menu mm. and that actually is a very enjoyable experience it's more fun to have that variety and eat a bunch of different things instead of everybody have this just one big plate of this meal which often in the US i think the UK does this a little bit too mm. The portions are so nuts mm. and they give you such big portions, even at healthy restaurants sometimes, but really that varietal of eating all these different vegetables and seeing all that color even looks for yeah. a much better table. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think the way we eat, uh, the company in which we eat, as well as the, even the size of our plates as well, this all has an impact on our satiety. So, you know, if we're having small amounts of food and we're sharing it with people, you're actually going to eat slower, you're going to enjoy your meal, and you're actually going to feel fuller quicker with less food as well. And I think, you know, that's that's how we've been designed to eat. You know, from an evolutionary point of view, we didn't each get our own plate. We just ate from the same plate or the same uh, part of the fire or whatever. So, you know, it's a very natural way of eating and it's a very enjoyable way of eating too. Is that a big part of your work, encouraging people to share meals with others? Absolutely. We, uh, for the culinary medicine course, at the end of the cooking, everyone's made their meal and we all sit around a table and we all eat together and we have a discussion about what the clinical case is, what the issues are in general practice or whatever their specialty is, how we actually iterate the conversation around food with specific patients that might not be very receptive to the idea. That is very, very pivotal to not only the learning environment, but actual you know, experiencing what it's like to eat around a table. Because I think we, we usually eat in front of screens or, or in front of our phones and that kind of stuff. And that's a very unnatural state to be in. And the other thing, the stuff I do with the community kitchen as well, we all make the food and we all make an effort to sit around a table and enjoy the food together. So I think it's integral part of the eating experience, but also the health promoting experience of food as well. As well. You know, in Broken Brain, you talked about how you prepare recipes and whole food meals. And you talked about the importance of really... and in 10 minutes or less preparing yeah. these meals and you referenced earlier uh, out of your book what are a couple and maybe we can link them up here in the show notes what are maybe one two or three of your classic kind of go-to base 
recipes. You yeah. know, I see the recipes that you make and you'll vary them. Maybe this time you'll put different spices, but the base might be a go-to base yeah. for you. So what are a, a couple recipes that are like your go-to that you can make in less than 10 minutes? So um, there's one called herby mushrooms. That is one of my favorites. It's just chicken snap peas, some frozen peas, sun-dried tomatoes, a little bit of broth in there as well. And that, honestly, I make in about eight, nine minutes. It's super quick. I sometimes make that for breakfast. I might crack an egg in the middle of it too. Um, another one that I, uh, the prep and everything is so quick, but the cooking time is a little bit longer. It's a sweet potato bake with turmeric and lime. And it's literally just prep. You put it into a baking tray and then just put it in the oven for about 30, 35 minutes. That is probably the least fuss and the most common meal that I'll make at the end of a busy day where I don't really want to cook that much. Um, and uh, there's another one where, oh, it's uh, uh, ginger uh, noodles with uh, soy roasted vegetables. And again, it's, it's very much just putting things onto a plate, making some uh, buckwheat noodles and uh, adding some mushrooms to it as well. There's some delicious recipes. Those there. sound great. And we're going to link them up so that people can um, Epic. check them out. Uh, I just want to say I, I love how accessible you make healthy eating and just seeing you. I really do think that the videos that you do where people watch you, it's almost like people are so scared. You know, we just had uh, Dr. Maya, who is a friend yeah. of yours on the, uh, you know, on the podcast. And we were talking about how scared people are of dirt. Yeah. How scared kids are of dirt. Yeah. They don't want to get dirty, yeah. bacteria, hand yeah. sanitizers. In a very similar way, I think people are scared of cooking. Mm. They think it has to be this much more complicated thing. Of course, we've been talking about that. But just seeing you do it, it's like that moment goes off in their brain where they're like, I can do this. Yes, And exactly. I just really appreciate the work that you're doing in that space to make it accessible for people. Appreciate that, Drew. I really appreciate that. <laughs> um, any final tips or thoughts that you want to share with people about uh, not just food, but also I think one thing is how do we make change in society? Yeah. You're doing this course in culinary medicine. You're a physician and you're making influence in the way that you can. But how are ways that other people who are out there who want to inspire others, or maybe it's a mother and wants to inspire a school system or a father and wants to inspire the school system mm. or just change the things that are happening in the snacks that are offered in your office. W what are some of the ways that people can get started and make a difference in getting us to this place where the people around us can also get excited about treating food as medicine? You know, it's really interesting you say that because uh, I'm being asked a lot uh, these days from the Royal Colleges of not only general practice, but also emergency medicine to try and improve uh, access to wellness and the concept of wellness amongst people working in the NHS. Because I think this whole concept of, of eating and, you know, um, and food is it's it's lost on a lot of the healthcare practitioners. So some of the things that I've been introducing to them are things like batch cooking for your colleagues. So let's take the example of if you're working in an office or you're working in a busy ward, like a lot of the nurses and the doctors. Um, one person comes in on, on a busy shift. One person will just make the roast sweet potato. Another person will make some steamed uh, broccoli with, with soy or different sorts of spices. Another person will make the tomatoes or the salad or the avocado chopped and that kind of stuff. And that way, because you've specialized the labor almost, you've just focused on whatever your meal is, you're getting a variety of different ingredients and you haven't actually needed to cook that much and you're getting delicious meals and you're sharing it so not only are you creating that community around food but you're also getting a delicious meal at the same time so that gets people thinking about it too 
inviting nutritionists, practitioners, uh, doctors or dietitians who are passionate about the subject to come and talk at your workspace, I think is a very interesting thing. I'm being asked to do it quite a bit. I, I've done a whole bunch of talks for uh, different practitioners and different sorts of clinical settings as, as well as non-clinical settings as well. I think that's really effective. Even things like watching a YouTube video about someone talking about whole foods or how to get more plants in your plates and stuff and watching that as a group, I think is very effective. Um, the schools thing, I think is really interesting. So I don't have any kids, uh, but I, I've got a lot of my friends who've got children these days and you know they're just having open honest conversations with the teachers about the school's uh, uh, choices and healthy meals and what they're doing to uh, you know try and improve the health of their kids right when you bring up the conversation not in a uh, kind of um, negative way but in a sort of positive tone in, in a way that actually demonstrates to them that you're aware their food has an impact on their mood, their health, as well as, you know, how they're going to progress in the future. Um, that, that, I think, is a really powerful statement to make. And they will make changes. And they're slow, incremental changes. It's not going to happen overnight. But when you start having the conversation around it, I think you're going to see a lot more difference. All great tips. Uh, Ruby, tell us where people can find out more about you. You have podcast, Instagram, uh, you have a course actually too, an online course. Yeah. Uh, how can people find out about you and uh, get more into the material that you talk about? Sure, man. So my website is thedoctorskitchen.com. You can find my book on Amazon under the same name, The Doctor's Kitchen. And on Twitter and Instagram, I'm doctors underscore kitchen. You'll find lots of heath healthy eating inspiration on those platforms. It's a solid brand through and through. And the podcast. <laughs> and the podcast, yeah. The Doctor's Kitchen is on uh, uh, iTunes and all the other podcasts. Cosplays. And you've done season one and now you're gearing up for season two. Yes. And that's going to be demonstrating the intersection of nutrition across all different sorts of medical specialties. So I've got Rangan on the podcast, who's a good friend of ours from the Doctor in the House. And I've got uh, lots of different colleagues from different specialties. So oncology, looking at cancer, uh, gynecology, looking at women's health, as well as eye health, skin health. You know, we're going to be talking about nutrition in lots of different contexts. That's incredible. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, especially on your birthday. <laughs> My pleasure, buddy. It's an honor to have you. And we really celebrate all the work that you're doing. And I hope that if there's any physicians that are listening here, uh, or healthcare practitioners or people in the U S who want to model off of the culinary medicine work that you guys are doing, uh, is there a way to get in touch or kind of check it out a little bit further? Is there a website? For yes. The yeah. So there's culinarymedicineuk.org. Um, and also there's culinary medicine in the U.S. already as well. And Tulane, I'm more than happy to start having conversations with different medical schools. And I'm always pushing the U.S. population or the U.S. Uh, uh, doctor contingent their way as well. So I'm happy to, to pass people on the details. Incredible. Thank you so much. Anytime, buddy.